0: Do you own firearms? Did you know there's an easy way for you to let everyone around you quickly see whether your firearm is loaded or unloaded? Well, meet muzzlestick, barrel, and chamber flags. Muzzlestick, chamber, and barrel flags offer a quick way for anyone, whether they handle firearms or not, to quickly see the loaded or unloaded status of a firearm. And that could save lives. Are you one of the nearly 80% of firearms owners that keep a loaded gun out of the safe for personal protection, taking an extra safety precaution by using Muzzle Stick's big, bright barrel and chamber flags will let everyone around your firearm know if it is loaded or unloaded. Muzzle Stick does not recommend keeping a loaded firearm outside of a gun safe, but the reality is that some firearm owners do clearly marking a gun status, communicates to others around that may or may not have firearm handling experience that it is something that they would not want to handle. Muzzlestick is not intended to replace the rules of firearm safety. However, their chamber and barrel flags give firearms rapid and clear identification, which could result in saved lives. It's time for you to do everything you can to be a safe and responsible firearms owners head over to muzzlestick.com that's m u z l s t i k.com today to place your order after all we all only have but one life <music> and hello gentlemen this is the victor davis hansen show i am jack fowler the host but the star and the namesake that is victor davis hansen he is the martin and ely anderson senior fellow at the hoover institution and the wayne and marsha busky distinguished fellow in history at hillsdale college victor is a best-selling author syndicated columnist military historian classicist farmer and uh I don't know, put upon Traveler, I think, right? <laughs> uh, yeah.
1: Quite put upon. Grump, grump, grumpy, tra- grumpy traveler. That's all right.
0: His, uh, he's got a website, very active website, one you should be subscribing to. It's called The Blade of Perseus. So the web address is victorhanson.com. And we'll talk more about that towards the end of this uh, episode. We've got. I I want to begin the show, Victor, with a question that a a listener sent about Taiwan, and then uh, have another foreign policy matter based on an essay you've just written for the new criterion. And you've got some news to share about Stanford University. Uh, Today, we're recording on the 25th of February, and now has just announced its uh, forthcoming class of 2027. So you can break some news here. We'll get to all these things, Victor your thoughts and intelligence right after these important messages.
2: Let's face it, as you get older, after a night with drinks, you don't bounce back the next day like you used to. Thanks to Z-Biotics, you don't have to make the choice of having a great night or a great next day. Z-Biotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by Ph.D. scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Now, here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. ZBiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make ZBiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com slash Victor to get 15% off your first order when you use Victor at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money-back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com slash Victor and use the code Victor at checkout for 15% off. Thank you, Zbiotics, for sponsoring this episode and our good times.
0: Are back with the Victor Davis Hansen show. Victor on Facebook, a, a this uh, Vivek, who is a not that Vivek, another Vivek, but Vivek is a a really really um, a big fan of yours and regular listener. He he sent me a question. I thought it was a pretty good question, so I think I'll, I'll pose it because because it's well, you're you, we'd like to get your thoughts on it. And here's what he wrote: Ask Victor if he thinks China will target Taiwan with the goal of taking it before October of this year, which will mark the 75th anniversary of the proclamation of the People's Republic of China. I think that if China could take the island, Shanghai shek fled to, which has been mocking uh, them with the old republic flag since 1949, and throw a victory parade on the anniversary, it would be too good an opportunity to pass up. Interesting question, Victor. You have any thoughts on that? Well,
1: I think it depends a lot, on a, as it always does, on a cost-to-benefit analysis, and we can break that down. So there's two scenarios, and we're not going to talk about they're never going to try it, because I think they are going to try it. The, the one scenario is you just wait in hopes of Joe Biden being reelected, and then what you saw in Ukraine – what you saw with Hamas, what you saw with the Houthis. And by the way, most of the major uh, transit corridors in the world, the Red Sea that leads to the Suez Canal, the Black Sea that goes through the Bosphorus and the Dardanelles, the Mediterranean Sea off the coast of the Middle East, the Gulf of Hor- the Straits of Hormuz by Iran, they're all under contest now. We have lost the ability to protect the the navigation sea commercial routes in those places, the choke points. And it's going to get worse. So if you're China, and South China Sea, of course, is one. So if you're a Western ship and you go into the Straits of Hormuz, or you go into the Red Sea, or you go into the Black Sea, or you go into the South China Sea, or you go into the Eastern Mediterranean, you better be careful. And uh, so the world is getting very, very dangerous under Joe Biden. And I think they're thinking, well, what we saw in the first term, if the guy gets reelected, it will, it'll just, it'll just continue and we'll get even more chances and he won't do anything. And they've depleted their artillery shells. They depleted their missiles. They're overextended. They've given all this stuff away. So, It depends on what they think is going to happen in November. If they think Joe Biden is going to win, then I think they'll hold off because I think there's going to be, it's going to get even more opportune. If they think he's going to lose and Donald Trump is going to be president, I don't think they're going to try it with Donald Trump because they have no idea what he'll do. I don't have any idea and our listeners don't have any idea what he would do, but he would do something and they wouldn't like that something. So, if they think in October, as your as the reader, the listener suggested, if they think that Donald Trump is going to win, then they would see this as a window October to January twentieth of two thousand twenty four to twenty five would be an opportune tune moment because they don't feel anybody's in charge, and they don't think anybody would take responsibility for losing Taiwan, and they in a cost to benefit analysis, they would think. For all the turmoil, for all the stuff that happened to Russia, the all the stuff that happened to Hamas, they feel that the West won't do anything, that Hamas will be will get away with it. And Ukraine will I think Russia will get away with a lot of what they wanted. And I just think it's a, it's not I'm not I'm not saying it's fifty-one percent likely, but if it's going to happen. And they think that uh, Joe Biden is going to lose the election then sometime and in, in before January 20th from now until January 20th of 2025. They might see a window that they'll never get another opportunity like it.
0: Victor, you, you have talked before about this group you oversee at Hoover Institution, uh, the military group. You have, uh, I think you've told us, you, you have a big thing coming a big event yes uh, we do conference coming up i'm wondering is uh if it i have to assume that the issue on the the forefront of most people in that world and you'll correct me is we the war the ongoing war in ukraine but does the threat of china compete with that as a yes it does issue?
1: we we, t- we pick a topic, and. You can go to Strategica. That's with a K, online, and we have a a topic, and we try to get a disinterested, nonpartisan essay, and then we try to get two short essays: one that agrees with the historical essay, and one that disagrees. And then we have other commentary, and we have a poll, and for the reading, every three, two and a half weeks, three weeks, and. Then we have a conference where we get the original core members. There's about 30 of us. And I mean, the the, the core members, I mean, they're people of widely diverse political views. They can be Andrew Roberts, Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, Jim Mattis, Ralph Peters, uh, Edward Lutwak, Mark Moyer, all different types of people. And then we invite observers and participants So we have another 10 or 20, I think we have 70 and it's kind of like in a concentric circle. So we have the inner group and they joust on the, and we have a overall theme and this theme is proxy wars and everything is off limits to the public in the sense that no one can be quoted what they say and nothing leaves a room. And that really encourages candor. And I all I can say last year, which was on Ukraine, I won't mention any names or what was said, but I will say there was a lot of expertise uh, on Ukraine, the Donbass and Crimea by historians, by military personnel, by Europeans, by Americans. And there was a lot of people, Jack, that warned us that that euphoria, it was last March. This is going to be a month from now. That euphoria about the so-called spring offensive was misinterpreted. And there was not going to be a successful spring offensive because given the nature of the Russian corridor of defenses, tank traps, mines, drone kill zones, artillery kill zones, it would be very, very hard to break through with the with the wherewithal that the Ukrainians had, and especially, and this was what was really prescient, we had two people who were very, very pro-Ukrainian, and they were very worried that they did not have the manpower to sustain an offensive, an armored offensive, i.e. like Patton or Guadheri and Ramon break through there, and they instead were wondering why they didn't stay on the defense and let the Russian ram beat his head. And they, they turned out to be exactly right. In a very tragic way, because Ukraine lost people they couldn't afford to lose. So this time we're talking about proxy wars in three areas, Taiwan uh, and also Ukraine, but especially uh, Iran and the United States and Israel, but vis-a-vis Iran and the United States. Or the Iranian surrogates uh, versus the U.S. interest in the Middle East. We have some really great speakers, and I'm really looking forward to it.
0: Victor, that event will take a place i I assume on the uh, grounds of Stanford University yes, it'll
1: it'll be at the Hoover institution on the twenty second of March.
0: well, it was a kind of an, a lead in to Stanford University you yes. some, you, <laughs> you, you uh, we just talked about you told me before the show began about that Stanford is a uh, the the college is announcing its forthcoming cl- the twenty twenty seven class. Victor, why don't you tell us about that?
1: Well, everybody remembers that the universities were just terrified of uh, that Supreme Court case against Harvard, you remember, that just was decided. And so it's. I think everybody should look at uh, that students, I think it was called the students for fair admission versus Harvard, and which the students for fair admission, Asian students primarily, but not all, won. So this is the last class in the United States that is not subject was not subject to that Supreme Court ruling. And we'll be very interesting to see how these universities change their demographics if they do and I doubt they will. I think they'll find ways to cheat. So we we're getting the information on a lot of schools on the class of 2027. The Stanford Review, which is a con, albeit a conservative newspaper, you know, it really go, breaks it down. It breaks it down from data that Stanford uh, supplies. And Stanford's very proud. I'm just not picking on Stanford. It's no different than Harvard or Yale. But they only admitted about less than 4% of the people who applied. Think about that, less than 4%. And less than half, Jack, Submitted an SAT. It's optional. Less than half. We talked with Sammy that people are going to, they're starting to reinstate it, but they didn't this year. And I think they probably will do it next year. But that, what I mean is there, there was almost 54,000 people who applied and they only let in about 2,000. And uh, they had, you know, the 2,000 that they let in, 80%. Uh, agreed to come or they wanted to come. But what we're talking about is that these are repertory admissions because however you, I mean, there's a uh, one of the things we don't know about when we get into this racial uh, identity politics quagmire is what we do with people who are of mixed ancestry, mixed, but anyway, uh, so-called whites make up 22%. And because of the imbalance of male-female, we're talking about 9 or 10% white males. They make up about 35% of the country. Somewhere between 67 and 70% are so-called white, depending on the census. And males are about 50% of that. So 33 to 35%. Okay. Does that, that include schol- um, athletes? Uh, yes, it athletes. does. It yep. does. Okay. So, So what you're basically saying to the United States is, Stanford is going to only let in by design, nine or, or 10% white males. And out of that white males, they've got to get all of their athletes. They've got to get the legacies that is people whose parents, grandparents, great-grandparents went to Stanford and they've got to get the donor class. And I mean, they get calls where I'll give you 5000000 million, I'll give you $10 million, And they've got to get the children of the provost, the president, the chairman of the department. And so what it really means is if you're not submitting only less than half submit SAT scores and get in, what well, means if you're... white male guy and you live in billings montana and you're a straight-a student and you got a perfect sat and you've got all these you play the violin and you've traveled the world and you've worked at the soup kitchen or you've built i don't know uh some type of new invention whatever they do for extracurricular activity you're not going to get in there's just no room for you not when you have nine percent white male and so when you go to repertory admissions, and that is you let... It used to be proportional representation that whatever the national demographic was, these Ivy League and Stanford University like it tried to reflect. So they would let in 33 to 40% white. Now it's down to, to nine nine. I don't know how the Supreme Court is going to that, uh, that decision. My experience in 50 years of academia is that academics have absolute contempt for the law. They believe they're brighter, they're more moral, they're more sophisticated, they're better educated, and the law does not apply to them. And therefore, as self-declared ingenious people, they will figure a way to break the law. But this will be the last class that they won't have to make that effort. And so I don't know, you know, it's just, if you're not asking sat and you're not rating, as we've said earlier jack you're not comparing the gpa quality of a high school and they're not then what are you evaluating people on you're evaluating them on their race essentially and there's a and uh that that's not the end of it everybody should realize that's not the end of it that is the beginning because once you do that then you have to make adjustments. You can't let somebody in without an SAT score. And from a high school that is not ranked, or compar- that the GPA, If it even, even if it is 4.2 or something, right. is not as competitive as another one. You can't let that student in, and a lot of those students in of whatever background, And then expect the old 2015, 2012 curricula and grading standards to sustain itself. They can't. So you're going to have to say something along the following. Oh, about 2010, people at Cal State Fresno, or they had SAT scores or GPAs that were not competitive. But now, and they had these courses, and now... Our, our selectivities, no, they from theirs because we have no idea how any of our students would do on the SAT, at least the majority of the more than 50% we let in. And we don't really want to look at them anyway. They're only optional. And we don't really know the quality of these GPAs. So we're just letting students in. And we're going to have to make some adjustments. And that means we either inflate the grades or we water down the courses or we make new courses. And that's happening as we speak. And if you don't want to do that, then and you want to stick to the standards that Stanford imposed on you, because Stanford used to say you're not going to get into Stanford unless you get 1500 minimum on the SAT, 750 in each. And you're not going to get in unless you got a four point from a really good high school. And if you didn't have either one of them, you better be a superb athlete or you better be a concert pianist, or you better have invented a new computer program, or you better be the son of a Silicon Valley mover right. and shaker, or you better be the daughter of a provost. And if you're not right. that, you're not going to get in. Well, now, according to their own rules, that they don't exist anymore. So the the grading and the, the curriculum... And the standards and the work requirements were based on those rules. And those rules don't exist anymore. So you're going to have to change everything to adapt to the new rules. And you can see it happen. The new rules will be things that. I just got my alma mater, okay, the Department of Classics um, in Stanford University. And it's a very good, I'm not, you know, I'm not. I'm not at all. Critic- What's it an annual? An annual? Yeah, I, thing. Or- yeah, and I'm just curious because when I look at uh, the coursework, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to just one-sided criticize it. But when you look at the coursework and what people are studying, it is—it's just something that that would be unimaginable when I was a student there. Uh you know it's just sure i uh, well, i you know when you look at seminars uh okay i'll just read some seminar what's the problem with eurocentrism
0: and to be clear this is the classics department yeah. at stanford university yeah i mean okay. that's a
1: conversation or if you wanted right. to go to another panel toward our a harmonious transnational feminism women love lock lack, and antigone or you can go to a presentation, Income and Wealth Inequality from the Stone Age to the Present. Or you can go what? to uh, it's a classics course? Yes, you can take a course called Refugees Race in the Greco-Roman World, or you can take one called African Archive Beyond Colonization. And there's a new book out by one of our faculty, Untangling Blackness and Greek Antiquity. Uh, and economics of weaving, women, labor, and textiles. And I can go on. I'm not trying to make fun of them, but I'm just saying that when I was a student, the courses were things like the manuscript tradition of Aeschylus' suppliants or uh, the foundational documents of the Athenian Empire or great issues in the Peloponnesian War or the use of language and style and Sophocles' plays, or lost ancient comedians. I'm not saying that they were broad, but they were all intended for one reason, to right. make sure that you knew Greek and Latin very well, to make sure you knew the main authors of antiquity, and to make sure... You had been trained how to cite evidence to know whether Diodorus was a source as valuable as Herodotus. If you're going to make an argument based on Plutarch writing in 100 AD, you would need to know... Which life of Plutarch is dependent on which particular source, and what that means is the life life of Cicero as valuable, is valuable as the life of Demon? It was a very scientific approach to the use of language, and then of course everyone had. When you uh, we had a professor, I'll just give you one quick example. He said, "If I wanted to know something about water in antiquity, what would I, how would I know about it?" And then you would say, "Well." Here are the major sources. This is Herodotus, Thucydides, Sophocles. And this, I remember in this particular book, they talked about an aqua, a duct, or they talked about water in a religious sense. And then you'd say, okay, so you look at literature, yes. And then we look at epigraphy, documents on stone. And somebody would say, well, you know. In my research, I realized that in one of the, on the island of Samos, they built an aqueduct in 500 B.C. Okay, so we, we can get information on that. And then another student would say, there's another part of the triad. It's not just literature. It's not just documents on stone. It's archaeology. Another person would say, well, you know, I excavated a Corinth, and I remember that we found... Uh, a aqueduct or a, a dam at, during the reign, the tyranny of Polycrates. Oh, what was it? And then another person said, "Well, you wait a minute, you forgot numismatics, coins. And so we, we were taught that any question about the ancient world, you would get a PhD. And if you got a PhD, you would emerge with the tools to research and to discourse and to answer questions because you knew how to find the answer. And the answer was found in, 53 million words of Greek literature. It was found in 20 or 30,000 inscriptions written on stone contemporaneously, mostly from the Athenian empire. If you were a classicist that specialized in Hellenic Hellenism. And then in addition to that, you would be acquainted with the major archeological excavations going on and where you could read about them and, uh, you would also know something about coins and papyri and i don't think the courses or the panels or the discourses yeah. that i read will will inculcate that ability i just don't and one of the reasons that i left classics in 2004 as a professor is that i must have hired i don't know seven or eight professors over 20 years because mm-hmm. i was a single person classics department for three or four years and then we're just two of us and then finally we had i think four But my point was, I I started interviewing people that didn't know Latin and Greek very well. In fact, I got in trouble because I asked some person to translate uh, from Lysias, I think it was. And she thought that was unfair and and said that you're not supposed to do that as a potential hire her. And an applicant shouldn't have to perform right to know basic latin or greek so but that's not i'm not suggesting stanford is unusual i'm just saying that is now what people are being interested in and people should remember that this happens all the time if you go look at one of the problems with classical scholarship during the cold war and i used to really be interested in farm size and ancient agriculture still am and land tenure and inheritance and some of the most brilliant people were writing in Czech and Polish journals, sometimes translated, sometimes with synopses in English. But the point was you couldn't trust the findings because it was all about at the end you'd see and therefore the proletariat and therefore the exploitive capital class. So in other words, all of the evidence was leading to class struggle in Marxist terms. And then there would be a SOP line about, you know, Marxist revolution in the 20th century. And if you wanted to read about the Helots or uh, Sparta, do not read anything written in German from uh, 1935, maybe even 32 to 1945. It's completely worthless because it'll all talk about the racial component of helots or Spartans or the racial ancestry or Arianism in the ancient world. It's just completely worthless. And so, my point is anytime that ideology permeates a field and it starts to govern the title of a panel discussion or a PhD thesis or a book or a course, i.e. DEI and various modes of oppression as defined by your race or your gender or your sexual orientation. And that will be the primary focus of research that's acceptable. Then everybody comes out of the woodwork and think, oh, my God, I'm 25 years old. I've spent eight years of my life undergraduate and graduate. I'm getting this esoteric degree and there's hardly any jobs. But if I write something about military strategy during the Peloponnesian War, or I write something like, I, I don't know, uh, metallurgy and mines and the, the importance of iron mines and the Roman Empire, I'm not going to get a job. Or if I will try to find uh, Aristotle's Poetics that's lost, if I write something about Papyrus and its contribution to reconstructing the poetics of Aristotle, I'm not going to get a job. And so I better get a topic that has something about diversity, equity, inclusion, or race, or gender, or right. trans, or gay issues, and and that can be fine. But when you're all doing it, you're doing what has happened under the Soviet and other systems, and it won't it won't last.
0: Well, Victor, that you talk a lot there about obviously the scholarship and and rigor. And one thing, I'd like to get your thoughts on. Would also be the knowledge of the incoming students. And let's get to that right after these important messages. We're back with the uh, Victor Davis Hanson show. First, Victor, I want to say that uh, our God-given freedoms are facing unrelenting attacks. It's a battle for truth. And the only way we win is if we stand together. And thankfully, Alliance Defending Freedom has been defending our rights for 30 years and winning. Right now, they're involved in two critical cases before the Supreme Court. One, they're suing the FDA for endangering the health and safety of women and girls. And in the second case. They are assisting the state of Idaho to defend its laws, uh, protecting the lives of women and their unborn children against the Biden administration's attempt to override the law and force doctors to perform abortions. And they need your help. With your best gift, you can courageously join ADF in fighting critical Supreme Court cases against government lawlessness and help defend our cherished freedoms. Go to joinadf.org slash victor. That's joinadf.org forward slash victor to give now with your help. I've pledged to raise $5,000 by March 31st for ADF. Visit joinadf.org slash victor to make your best gift right now. I know with your help, we can beat that goal and help make a generational difference for freedom. And we thank the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a terrific organization, terrific, uh, for uh, sponsoring the Victor Victor Davis Hanson Show. Now, Victor, this is not a backwards way into promoting your book and your website, The Blade of Perseus, victorhanson.com. But I, as you know, uh, you and I have uh, done a little work for an interview piece we're doing for AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens, for their terrific magazine about that, the forthcoming book, The End of Everything. And I wonder, this has to do with this, with knowledge, Uh, not the skin color of the incoming student, not the wimpiness of the uh, graduate student and the the lame-o courses that they're being taught, but the actual knowledge that the student has after the accumulation of twelve years of um, you know K through twelve education. And I'm wondering if the four main cases you present in your book, The End of Everything, are the annihilation of uh, of uh, uh, Carthage, Thebes, uh, the Aztecs, and Constantinople. And would you think that even a quote unquote, smart student would not have a clue, about any of those historical events?
1: I don't think so. I don't. When I reference the Aztecs as a professor, if I do, people have no idea what they were about. I mean, they were very sophisticated in terms of astronomy and architecture and engineering. But, I mean, there were somewhere between, who knows, 25,000 to 40,000 human sacrifices a year as well as ritual cannibalism, institutionalized. And that's the only reason Cortes won, because when he invaded from 1519 to 1521, he had the help of the Tlaxcalans and other allies, and they didn't want to help these foreign barbarians. They helped them because they thought they had the ability to dethrone the Aztecs that were harvesting tens of thousands of their of their population every year in these so-called flower wars but i don't think anybody knew about that. nobody knows about that they don't teach that in the universities as far as alexander the great and what he did and he, i don't think anybody knows that in the universities these days uh, constantinople to the degree that it, people understood that on may 29th 1453 little afternoon uh constantinople fell it would be more or less pro so ottoman and Islamic, uh, that maybe the Byzantines were a thousand year interlopers or something. And on Carthage, the destruction of Carthage, Scipio Melianus, why Rome destroyed Carthage. And, and by the way, I'm not taking just a Western. I'm very critical of Alexander the Great for destroying Thebes. I mean, there was no need for Scipio Melianus to destroy Carthage or even start the third Punic War. The Carthaginians had met every crazy demand. They even the only demand they didn't meet was to destroy their own city and move it ten twelve miles inland. They weren't willing to do that. But everything else they had done. And I wasn't. I'm not. I didn't say that the Byzantines were perfect and that Ottomans were awful. It was inevitable. What was going to happen given demographics and this dynamic new religion of the last. Uh, know, eight hundred years had been able to to transcend tribal loyalties, everything in, in Asia and in Africa North Africa. So it was a very dynamic system that the Byzantines were not up to. And then of course, the misfortune of the Aztecs were that they didn't meet the pilgrims. <laughs> What I mean by that is, if you look right. at patterns of colonization, North American right. colonization had families, and they were a lot of, in many cases, Protestant refugees, and they were not military people that were going to the East Coast of the United right. States. If you look at the patterns of immigration from northern Mexico to Chile, and include the Caribbean, it was largely a monopoly of only people could emigrate with the permission of the Catholic and Spanish government. In other words, if you wanted to go and take your family and you wanted to move to the coast of Colombia or something, you had to get a permission from the Spanish government, and that was not given to you unless you were a subject of the Spanish Empire or were given some kind of quasi-citizenship, and you were Catholic. And the point problem here was that Spain, as you know, 1492 Columbus to 1521, Cortes take, and then the Incas up into the 1550s with Pizarro. This was a culture that had been doing what? It had been fighting religious wars nonstop, uh, and would be fighting religious wars nonstop with the Protestant Reformation. But more importantly, it had just come out of the Reconquista. And so when you look at Spanish conquistadors who went to the New World, you're talking about people whose ancestors or grandparents, they had been fighting for 200 years, fighting to unify Spanish speakers and reclaim the Iberian Peninsula from Muslims. And they had been fighting in North Africa. And they had been fighting a new threat called Protestantism. Right. And they, so when you unleash those people on to colonial indigenous people, they were not there to get, you know, mom and dad and grandpa and grandpa and get in a wagon and go farm 40 acres. They were there for God and glory and gold. And they were, and the point I'm making, they, the Spanish Empire in 1500 was at its zenith. Uh, it was just starting to get huge amount amounts of silver and gold bullion from the New World, but more importantly, they, if you look at military technology and the, and. What was coming out of Toledo, Spain, as far as the quality of, it had been from Roman times, but the quality of steel swords, or you look at the tercio, the Spanish uh, phalanx formation, or you look at the quality of uh, Spanish uh, breastplates, and you look at all the way into the 16th, 17th century, and you look at Don Juan, you know, at Lepanto, 1571, and the quality of... uh, the duke of santa cruz those people won the battle of lepanto i mean they were they were very very fierce fighters is what i'm trying to say and right. they had a, they really did believe they believed that christianity was the savior of mankind and it was it was threatened on various fronts it was threatened by apostates within the church called protestants it was threatened uh, by Islam, and the only way it was going to survive is to conquer people and convert people and win souls. And so what I'm getting at is people are still baffled how Cortez, who had he had various, his army shrank and increased over that two and a half year period, but it was never larger than 1,500 people. So how did 1,500 people destroy an empire, 4 million? And part of the answer was the Tlaxcalans. And what I'm getting at is, there's no San Diego State Tlaxcalans is there no there <laughs> quite true no, no I used to I used to have a I have a lot of, I had a lot of Mexican American students and they were very interested in the Aztecs and every time I would say to them why aren't, you, why aren't you interested in the Tlaxcalans because the Tlaxcalans were brutalized by the Aztecs and fought back and destroyed it and if you yeah. look at the last if you look at Sayogun or Bern, Bernal Cust Diaz or any of the contemporary uh, chroniclers, the problem that Cortez had when he unleashed the Tlaxcalans in those last days of the fall of Tenochtitlan, he couldn't restrain them. And I mean, they they wiped out. One of the reasons there were no more Aztecs wasn't just the destruction of the capital city and Cortez, but it was that Tlaxcalans took an enormous revenge on them, and right. they were they were promised special concessions under new, the new Spanish control of. The Mexica, which is what they called. The Aztecs well, were never known as the Aztecs. They were called Mexico.
0: Well, uh, don't give the whole book away. I don't. <laughs> anyway, it's no. Uh, I got off it's on a the, tangent. Yeah, yeah. That's it's it's, it's good. To, any tangent you go on is, is a good tangent, Victor. That. Uh, you could go, folks, I'll get it in now, The, the Blade of Perseus, go to victorhanson.com. You'll see a link to that book. It comes out in May, The End of Everything, and check out other things there and subscribe while you're there uh, to The uh, Blade of Perseus. Victor, we have a little time left, and I thought maybe I should uh, get your th- get your thoughts on some of the this talk that's been going around, uh, talk and images about Google AI and let's get to that right after this final important message.
2: VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you
0: practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop.
2: Learn more at meta.com/slash metaverse impact. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast.
0: We're back with the Victor Davis Hansen show. Again, we're recording on the uh, Sunday, the 25th of February, and this particular episode should be out on Thursday, the 29th. So, Victor, uh, last year I was at a Coolidge Foundation event earlier in the year and your uh, your Hoover colleague John Cochran was there very interesting guy and the subject of AI came up and he I'm just I'm not picking on him I'm, I'm just using him as an example of many people on the right who say you know there's a lot of good that's going to come out of AI don't don't be afraid and and I have to take their word, to some extent on that. So uh, good. All right. This is going to open up new realities for the economy somehow or other. On the other hand about AI, now, Sean Davis, he runs The Federalist and he's very active on Twitter. And he, he puts this up the other day. If you ask Google's AI whether, quote, whiteness should be eliminated, end quote, it says the answer is Quote, complex and multifaceted, end quote, and tells you to study critical race theory and immerse yourself in whiteness studies. But if you Google, if you ask Google's AI if, quote, blackness should be eliminated, end quote, it says the very question is, quote, deeply concerning and harmful and perpetuates violence and discrimination. Victor, this is part of. Uh, you, you I'm sure our listeners have seen also some of these AI requests of, uh, you know, show me an image of the founding fathers versus yes, uh, yes. create an image of the founding <laughs> fathers. So the woke, the woke, there's something woke about in the DNA of of uh, Google AI and maybe other AIs. I don't even know. There, is. What, there, there yeah. is.
1: So it gets back to that story I beat to death when I was a kid, I was talking about that the, we had a big electric pump. My grandfather had a centrifugal pump and Then he put a, uh, a turbine pump in and it was getting, he was just freaked out with the water table in was about 60 feet and we were getting on a 15 horse about 1,500 gallons a minute. I said, wow, this is so different. And then as we walked back, we washed up and he had a little hand pump that was the original his, his grandmother had built. And so when the water, he pushed the lever down. He said, So the water's different, Victor? And I said, No, it's the same. It washes our hands. He said, Exactly. What his point was is the mechanism, the delivery system changes, but the essence doesn't. So AI is a delivery system, like internet. It's a much more dangerous one because it's much more effective. But knowledge is the water, and the knowledge is unchangeable. And so, it, AI AI depends on the quality of knowledge. So, if you put aside AI and you say, "Who are programming AI, and what type of knowledge are they using, and where do they come from?" Then you would come to the following conclusion. I wouldn't trust those people as far as I could throw them on any question of in the environmental sciences or sociology or race or equity or inclusion. However, on things like medicine or science, I don't think they have been corrupted, i.e. if I ask AI what it was the race of the founders, I would probably get a instant delivered Uh, Analysis that came out of the brain of some nerd who was a DEI idiot in Silicon Valley who coded that or did the program to tap on all of similar minds like his own imbecilic mind. However, if I had lymphoma and I typed into a I, what would be the best treatment for the eighth week of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma? then I think the person who had, you know, what the knowledge would be drawing on and the ability of AI to decipher what would be more valuable than not and go through millions of words would be very helpful. It reminds me since um, I, I kind of have one liability in life. I memorize a lot of stuff and one of them was Shane, our favorite movie. Remember? Yes. You remember that part where he's shooting and Gene Arthur Marion comes out and says, oh, no, oh, what are you doing, Shane? He says, you know, says something like, a gun is a tool, Marion. It's no better, no worse. Doesn't he say something than any other tool, an axe or something? And a gun, I remember this pervade, a gun is as good or as bad as a man using it. Yeah. And so AEI intelligence is as good or as and guns can be very dangerous. Uh, depending on the man using it or woman using it. And AI, AI can be very, very helpful or very, very dangerous depending on the people who create the programs that empower it. And if you know Silicon Valley and the people in Silicon Valley are its offshoots or its surrogates or its spinoffs, and as I have spent you know 20 years of my life living in that area during the week, I wouldn't trust those people to be disinterested or intellectually honest on any question involving the social sciences or the humanities or contemporary politics or culture. I would trust them because they want to live and they know there's certain scientific laws about computer science that they can't alter. And they would like to be able to find out when their mother gets a meningioma brain tumor, how they can act. So I would trust AI, as John Cochran points out, from what you told me. And he's a very bright guy. I like him a lot. He's won the Bradley Prize last year. He's a good colleague of mine, very smart guy. I think what he was trying to say is that, I shouldn't say he tries to say anything, he just says it. But I think what he's saying is that it's going to be very good for questions of engineering and science and the STEM and medicine because it will save us millions of hours of research where we don't have to go through this article and that article and Hey, everybody, did you know that in the Journal of Scientific, uh, the Ger- Journal of Philippine Science published in Manila, there was an article about this off-use, this off-label drug of, a, of this common drug that on the off-label use, it really stopped uh, pernicious asthma or something? And no, I didn't know that, but here it is, AI has incorporated it. So I'm not saying it's a panacea, but I think it'll be very valuable in the hard sciences and very dangerous in the humanities and the social sciences.
0: Yeah. I think I'm going to ask one of these AI things to come up with a picture of various pictures of Victor Davis Hanson and oh, doing mom. various things. By, <laughs> by the way, one of them is walking around his property listening to uh, AK-47s. So another is watch, looking at your new your barn being fixed.
1: And... Oh, my god, barn is almost fixed. It's all I just have to paint. It. And I had the some of the bravest guys I've ever <laughs> seen up at 35 feet above the concrete building a truss in situ. But it's. I'm not saying it was a wise thing to do. Does it take a 150-year barn that has no ostensible purpose given its shape and and volume? But uh, my attitude was, well, I'm the fifth person here and I have an obligation to pass it on to somebody, even if it's not my family, better than when I inherited it. But it was very expensive as far as I call expensive. And I can't see any What's the word? Investment in it. It's not going right. to make me more efficient, or right. but it it's going to... What it basically says is you have, I don't know, 1,800 square feet that's 35 feet up in the air and now it's built better than it ever has and it looks better than it ever has and it hasn't changed its shape or appearance since 1870.
0: How's that? How's a, a classicist who, who sees old forums and... And Roman theaters, standing, I think, would have be predisposed to keeping a family barn. I hope so. Barn, uh, I hope uh, so. Going, yeah. As, you know, so. Victor, this, uh, this, I mentioned already about your website, and as we're talking, you're, you may have concluded, but you have a, a, a so far three part series on your, your, um, uh, fixing the barn, and you can read them, folks, if you subscribe to to the website. They're wonderful pieces. But it prompted a, a um, comment. So, this is we're at the kind of at the end of the show here. So, here's the comment, and it's not from iTunes and Apple. And well, thanks, folks, who do that and rate the show. And appreciate it. Victor's got a 4.9 plus out of five uh, average. And again, we do read all the comments there. But here's a comment from your website, Victor sp- someone writing about your Barnes series. It's from Terry Hanous. It's a tiny bit long. I love your articles, uh, especially about the past, as I will turn 80 in May. And I've always hated change. I love old barns. And living in the foothills of the central Sierras, I'm fortunate to be able to see several old barns that are still standing. I grew up in Santa Cruz in the 40s, 50s, and early 60s, before U.S. UCSC was built and decimated our town, when it was still a rural quaint little fishing and resort town and Italian retirement community. It was one great place to grow up back then. I think every property we lived on had a chicken barn or two, and my dad converted one into our home, which by the way, still looks the same with less property and is now worth 1.5 million. Talk about change. So I learned very early on to love the past. I'm so happy that you are not replacing the barn with one of those ugly metal ones that have (laughs) popped up all over the place. I totally agree with your reader who thanks you for all that you do to protect not just your home, but our home, USA, from the ravages of time and those who seek to return our civilization to the authoritarian beginnings. And that's from Terry Hanus. That's a wow. beautiful it's uh, real, well written
1: that, very yeah, well written yeah. and composed. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. I have two more uh, sections coming uh, on Tuesday and Wednesday in the finale about that rebuilding the barn and pictures of it. And, you know, what's weird about that, I'll just finish today with this, is that the guy who, uh, he's done all the roofing, He's the head of something called Integrity Roofing in Fresno, but I, I won't mention his name to embarrass him, but we discussed what it would cost, and I thought I could get away cheaply with fixing a rafter, and we got on the top of the barn. It was no way. The, the trusses, there were not were never enough of them, and they had to be rebuilt, and they had to have more trusses and then the and then we just kept going, you know, siding, uh, reinforcement. you, you know, if you want to be able to walk on a barn, not a metal'll feel slide. So let's put on plywood and tie it together, and let's not just put any plywood, let's get thick plywood, and let's get 100 year guaranteed lifetime guaranteed shingles that look like wood. Um, so we did everything, and we talked about the price, but then after that, it was funny. There was no more talk about the price at all. It was every time I went out there, and I went out there once an hour, talked to the guy. It was always, "Can you look at this? Look what I'm doing! Look at this here, Mr. Hanson. I want to do this. Can I do this?" And it was like, "Let's put, let's tear off the old redwood siding that's been there a hundred and fifty years." And <laughs> it was, no, "No, no, no, please don't tear it off." let's let's fix it repair it let's hammer it in and we'll put siding over it so nothing changes so it's the same old barn but it's all been rebuilt and so every time right. I went out there a guy came up with an idea and one guy said to me oh I got to leave I don't want to leave I don't want to leave and what he was trying to say is And he did say it explicitly. All they do is build these McMansions, these beautiful custom homes. I'm not making fun of them. I'd like to have one. You know, the the cathedral, you know how you go to the 5,000 square foot California home. They have a cathedral ceiling 30 feet high and they're huge. And they do all of the sophisticated scissor trussing and everything on them. T-truss, everything. But They're always in town and they're always doing the same thing again and again. And this was a challenge to them to take an old barn that was 150 years old and figure out how to make it as strong as a metal shed. or But without... They're
0: they're craftsmen. They were. They were were, were artists. They want to... Yeah, they were artists. They
1: were artists. They came up with so many good ideas and they were courageous. They were way up there. And gosh, they... When you look at what they did, I have a picture at the last one. Um, the siding looks like it's perfect. There's not, it's just, they actually had a laser and they they tried to get the siding so it was just perfectly square. And, yeah. and then they kept all of the eucalyptus poles that are still there, you can see them, that were the original struts that held it up. They didn't have any money for wood, my great, great grandmother, and they went, they, they went and got blue. They call them blue gums from Australia and they built it out of blue gum. And then I had tried to do it repair 10 years earlier, just some interior walls. And they looked at that and they said, No, you're just doing this and that. And you look at, you know what's so weird when you look at the 1x12s up way up there, there's stair pieces that were from a stairway, you know what I mean? They just had no money. They took scrap labor from inside the house and they just threw it up there. Anything that would, they had no money that would keep the roof on. And then they got World War II um, war surplus metal and everything. So they just, when they got done with it, it was, it looked like a, a piece of artwork. The trusses yeah. were beautiful and they were so strong and you walk up on there and it was like walking on cement. Yeah. It didn't give. And when I went up there, I thought I was on, when I went up there the first time, I thought I was on a trampoline. It was so dangerous. And I'd started oh, to see yeah. the whole thing twist in the last storm and it was starting to get off the foundation. It wasn't going to, it looked like it was, like he said, he said, it looks okay until it doesn't look okay. Meaning it was going to collapse without any warning. Like America had, right had, I had 15, <laughs> 15 knots the size of my fist in it, so anyway it i I have it cost a lot of money that I didn't you know i'm I'm gonna have to make up but boy, I don't have to worry about anything and if when I go my two children can decide what to do if they want to live here but even if they don't they want to sell it it won't be a burden it won't have they won't have to say, oh my god i like, what do I do with this it's it's beautiful yeah. it's and it's stronger than a metal shed I think
0: I hope none of your neighbor's uh, AK-47 bullets uh, go through it. So, Well, um, I
1: have one of my solar panels is mysteriously not working. And so we looked up there, and I think that's what happened. There's oh wow, a, yeah. a, a couple of holes in it from Okay. New Year's Eve get, taking their AR-15s or just target press shooting up in the air. And everybody for, forgets when you shoot up in the air, the bullet comes down, and the bullet comes down at a velocity that's pretty fast and yeah. dangerous.
0: Well, you've been terrific, my friend. Uh I think next time we talk, I don't know if I mentioned at the beginning you've got a piece, an essay in the new criterion on Israel, and I think it's really important. We'll get to that maybe then the next show. I want to thank everyone for listening. And I want to thank those who have signed up for what I do, part of what I do. I write Civil Thoughts, the free weekly email newsletter for the Center for Civil Society at Amphil, and it shares a dozen plus Recommended readings. Here's a link, and here's a long excerpt of really, really good pieces I've come across the previous week. So if you go to civilthoughts.com and sign up, you'll get it free. And uh, we're not selling your name. So that's that. Uh, Victor's um, uh, VictorHanson.com. His Twitter handle is at VDHanson. We have. What else? One last thing. The the Victor Davis Hanson Fan Club. Great people run that on Facebook. If you're on Facebook, check it out and do join. Victor, you've been terrific. Thanks so much. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we will be back soon with another episode of The Victor Davis Hanson Show. Bye-bye.
1: Thank you, everyone, for listening again.